but really whenever I get in that library at Curtin which is where I'm studying I just feel like oh yeah. <laughs> I'm in my church <laughs> with oh, all these that. brains and the little books that I can just explore and yeah I could literally do it forever Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Today's episode is a combo new release Heart of Writing episode, and I'm very excited to be talking to my guest today, Sarah Foster. Sarah has a brand new book out, The Hush, and you're probably familiar with this cover. If you're looking at this on video, you will be seeing The Hush cover around everywhere, a fabulous sort of pink set of Russian dolls against a black background, and the the tagline, everything can change in a heartbeat. Sarah is a best-selling Australian author. She writes crime and dystopian fiction, and in a previous life worked as a book editor first as an in-house editor at HarperCollins in the UK and then as a freelancer. Her previous books include You Don't Know Me, The Hidden Hours and All That Is Lost Between Us, all sort of around that crime thrillery genre, which I'll be asking Sarah about in a few minutes. Sarah spent five years studying dystopian fiction for her PhD at Curtin University, and that's resulted in this new release and taken her writing in what I'm pretty sure is a new direction. The Hush is a new breed of near-future thriller, an unflinching look at a society close to tipping point, a story for our times and one that I'm finding scarily familiar uh, or very reminiscent of what we're actually living through at the moment in this pandemic. It highlights the power of female friendship through a dynamic group of women determined to triumph against the odds. It's had some amazing cover quotes and reviews. This has been said of it by Dervla McTiernan. It's smart and considered the book I wish I had written. Fine praise. And Nikki Gemmell said she had writer envy (laughs) and that Foster is changing the game. So I am currently reading The Hush. I'm finding it totally compelling. It's actually not the usual genre for me. I'm kind of not really into dystopian fiction, but that being said, I'm absolutely loving this. And as I said, there's a lot of resonance with some of the things that we're actually living through now. So Sarah Foster, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thanks so much for having me. Really good to have you here. I was trying to think the other day, Sarah, I did do a course with you. It was a workshop for one of the Sydney Writers Festivals. And I was trying to think how long ago that was, but I, I oh couldn't my even God. work it out. Yeah, no, like five years or something yeah. like that. It would be crazy yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking oh, well, five thanks. or six years. <laughs> oh, I hope it was good. <laughs> it was. It was. I really enjoyed it. And you've been very busy in that time. I have. So I've been, you know, checking out your website and doing a little bit of research into your career. And you have, you've written prior to the Hush six books. Is that correct? That is right. Yes. All kind of psychological suspense thrillers. And then this one's a little bit different with its near future theme. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) busy. Yeah. Well, I was actually away on the weekend as we were just chatting about. And um, one of my good friends is Ray Cairns. She's got an interesting story because she had a debut thriller out last year as an indie book it's now being republished by HarperCollins which is very exciting that's fantastic yeah and Ray's actually reading The Hush at the same time as I am right now so we were chatting about this on the weekend and I was sort of saying to her where would you put Sarah's books previous books in terms of genre and she was saying probably like around the psychological thrillery suspense type thing so yeah yeah, I always try and pick quite different themes and I just go with what interests me. So I do dot about a little bit, but I think there's always a core thread of 
these family relationships, the general build-up of suspense, you know, that kind of slight thriller element, but a little bit slower with the build. So that's more of the suspense side of things. So how would you say writing those books prepared you for writing The Hush? It is the same but different, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think I got to practice certain elements in those books that have been really useful for The Hush. I know that when when I wrote Shallow Breath, which was back in 2011, 2012, that book, I wasn't even sure I could achieve what I wanted to achieve because it was based in real world issues that happened 20 years ago in WA. So there's a big backstory about a marine centre that was in somewhere, well, it's around where I live, actually, it's called Atlantis, and that had dolphins in it, and it had closed down, and the dolphins had been re-released into the wild. And there was a whole kind of big thing around whether they could retrain them to be wild dolphins. And I had to do a lot of research for that book, not only with the dolphins, but with a lot of other animals as well. And because the story had a backstory 20 years ago and a current story, I really pushed myself with that book and thought, oh, you know, even as I was writing, I was thinking, am I going to be able to pull all this together? And the fact that I did, those things give you confidence to kind of branch out in the future. So when you come to something like The Hush and you're thinking, oh, can I really incorporate all these themes? Can I do what I want to do with it? Can I push it somewhere new? I think having done something like that. Yeah, that's one of yours I haven't read. That sounds fantastic. So I'm going to be looking that one up. Yeah. (laughs) So they have been around the the family relationships and, and that sort of thing and that psychological element that you've had with those books. So when it came to writing The Hush, did you see it as a major sort of, change for you like in a different direction or does it just feel like a a natural progression in in your writing journey if you like yeah perhaps a bit of both actually because the family relation is still so strong in this book obviously it's completely women-centered in this book so my uh, goal was to reconnect the matrilineal line in the fiction um, and to have a strong grandmother mother daughter presence in there as well as lots of other fantastic women characters around as well so in that sense it felt very familiar to me and just like I was exploring different themes but I guess the difference was the world building because I'd never tried to build a futuristic world before and I also felt very nervous about that and did a lot of research around that and both fictional and kind of practical just looking at near future ideas and where you know the kind of future thinkers were predicting that things were going to go and really trying to keep up with current affairs in that way Mm. so that I could pump it into the book as I went along because so much changed in the five years I was writing it as well that it (laughs) it became a a very different vehicle (laughs) than yeah it was um, even going to be at the beginning so yeah that's been a very interesting journey as well so I think a little bit of both yeah well before we go any further perhaps you could tell people who are listening what the hush is about Yes, absolutely. So The Hush is set in the UK and it's about five, ten years in um, to the future. And it's at a time when there have been an increasing number of stillbirths across the country and also a number of pregnant teenage girls have gone missing. So in response to this, the government has decided they're going to clamp down on people's freedoms and increase their powers of surveillance across the population. Of course, women are particularly affected by these rulings. Things like get going for a pregnancy test, you have to go and do it in the chemist. You can't just take one home anymore. It has to be recorded. The results are recorded. There's lots of monitoring around birth and things like that. So the women are very much affected. But into this situation, my mother and daughter of Emma and Lainey, So Emma is a midwife at the local hospital in Whitehaven, which is kind of southeast of England. And she is determined to help the women there who really need her care. And Lainey is a student at the local high school. And one of her friends, Ellis, is among the missing. Mm. So as time goes by and events happen with both Lainey and Emma, they begin to realise that they're actually very personally caught up in this bigger situation. Uh, once they realise that they might actually be in danger themselves, they have to turn to their group of female friends who are luckily a very formidable cast of characters yeah, um, in, order to, yeah, in order to try and get to safety um, and also to try and figure out actually what's going on in the wider world. Mm. Well, that's a really good summary of it, actually, because <laughs> there's a lot happening in the book. You mentioned that you started it around five years ago and I know you have been working on your PhD. Is, is that all connected? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the Hush is the creative component of the PhD. And in both the creative component and the exegesis, I'm exploring um, what happens when the mothers are absent in near future dystopian fiction with young adult heroines. And also what happens when we reintroduce the mother, whether we can do that without disempowering the young female heroines of books like The Hunger Games and Divergent and lots of books where the mothers are not very present. And that was a theme that I'd noticed a long time ago when I was doing reading. And so I really began to draw that into my books and my research and became so interested in it that I applied to do a PhD on the topic and have learned so much about, you know, kind of the themes around motherhood, how we represent mothers, the imagery, the language, all sorts of fascinating things that have also gone into the hush. Wow. That's amazing. What drew you to dystopian fiction in the first place, you know, to actually be that engrossed in it that you would want to do a PhD on it? Yeah, I've always been really interested in near future fiction. I'm just fascinated by how people come up with the vision um, Mm. for this kind of fiction and the different places where you can take it. It is quite freeing in a way to be able to explore cultural issues and societal issues and I'd really appreciated that in the classics that we'd all we all know like 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale and those are things that I'd read as a teen and very much enjoyed and they've been on my favourites list so I think it back in around 2009 when I had my first child that it was around the time when The Hunger Games was coming out and Divergent as well and was the start of a whole stream of this kind of fiction which had young adult heroines in it And I was just absorbed by the stories that they were telling, uh, fascinated by why they were so successful as well. And so I was kind of trying to unpick them going, what is it about where we are at this point in time as a society that these stories are really connecting with us? And I know I felt in particular that The Hunger Games operates on so many levels. And funnily enough, I wasn't keen to read that to start with because I'd heard, you know, it's a load of children murdering each other in an Mm. arena. And I was like, that's awful. Who would want to read that? Um, And as I... (laughs) When you put it like that, you really do think, how was that so popular? Yeah. And then you go and then you realise what fiction can do because you listen more and more to what that people are talking about. And then when you read that, you realise how allegorical it is and how much commentary there is on the nature of society in there and all the different levels. I mean, I have studied that book as part of my PhD and I'm sure I could study it a lot more and be drawing out all sorts of other themes in it as well. I find it fascinating. And I think the best kind of dystopian fiction is like holding up this mirror to society with it those kind of distorted mirrors you get at the circus, you know, oh, and going, yeah. what happens if we switch this around or what happens if we look at it like this? And, you know, it's not quite the same, but, you know, the vision is still there and we can see we could go this way or we could go that way. And, yeah, I find that completely fascinating. And to do it myself has been both a challenge and a joy, really, to try and come up with the same sort of thing. Yeah, it must have been. Mm. It's almost the ultimate what if, isn't it? You know, like in, in fiction as writers where it, asking that question a lot what if but I guess in in this sort of fiction it really is pushing some of the things that are happening in society now to that next level isn't it absolutely and I think that as well when you read stuff um, about the background of things like The Handmaid's Tale and Margaret Atwood obviously says she hasn't used anything in there that didn't happen in the real world that's so confronting and also I felt like I wanted to do something similar as in I didn't want to take it too far away from the real world. I didn't want to take it into fantasy or really futuristic science fiction. I wanted it to feel unnervingly real, unsettlingly so, and just tweak elements of all sorts of things that we already know are going Mm -hmm. on and we're already trying to figure out how to live with and just ask, you know, if we took that three steps further, what does that mean, you know, for where everybody ends up? And particularly there's these watches in the hush, you know, that you have to wear all the time and they monitor your heartbeat and they um, track your movements and they listen to your conversations. And But it's never quite, no one said, oh, we're doing all this stuff, but everyone knows that they're doing all this stuff because yeah. they get repercussions from it. But the only difference really in that and today is that they have to wear them. (laughs) And in fact, because they now have to use the watches for money, there's almost no point in taking them off anyway, because they can't pay unless they have a watch because it's connected with ID and all sorts of things. So 
it really hasn't pushed it that far. And I think that's what confronts people when they read the book is they see our world a lot and yet not. So, yeah, that's yeah. quite unsettling. <laughs> yeah, like that whole thing about, you know, your phone. And we were actually having a conversation, you know, when I was away with my writing group on the weekend, we were having that conversation about, you know, when you sit and you actually even have a, a talk about a particular product or whatever, and then you pick up your phone and the next thing you're getting ads for that product on your phone. Absolutely. Though, you know, yeah. you yeah. haven't actually gone out looking for it, but it's there. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yes. Terrifying, really. Yes. <laughs> but yet I... we all have to live with it because what, you know, there's no, alter- the way society is now being set up, there is little alternative if you don't have a phone. When I was reading something recently about somebody who was trying to live without a phone, I think it was, it was either a phone or a bank card or something like that. And the struggles they were having to get through day-to-day life were immense, you know. So yeah. yeah, we are all kind of being pushed that way anyway, but it does have its big conveniences for government situations and you rely on having a very benign government to deal with that and you have to have a lot of trust in the government and once that has gone and there's obviously quite yeah a, a kind of subversive government in there well, then everything changes very quickly, I think. It's funny, I we were at a restaurant, you know, just when lockdown finished here, we had a family lunch and just so happened that my eldest daughter's phone like completely went kaput, just carked it, you know, the day before. And we got there and, of course, we didn't even think about having to show your vaccine passport before you went into the restaurant. So she couldn't access that. And then she tried to access her my gov from somebody else's phone, couldn't remember the password, so she was locked out. She literally could not get into lunch because oh, no. she had access to that information <laughs> oh, on her phone, you know. Long story yeah. short, she did get in eventually. But, yeah, it really brought home to me that, you know, the way that all that has now been centralised and yeah. you have to have this stuff. So yeah. yeah. And the strange thing about that is that I don't know about you, but some part of my mind still presumes there's an end date to that. It's like when we all go back to normal, when COVID's over. I mean, I think we had that a lot to start with, you know, as opposed yeah. to this living with COVID now that we're getting more used to. But, you know, if living with COVID means long term living with COVID, well, then mm. When do we lose that? You know, I think we're, exactly. you know, it's it's easy to feel that that's maybe just a temporary measure while things are so difficult. And maybe it is, but we don't know. And we don't, again, know how useful that will be to technology, sorry, technological corporations or the government or, or different kinds of facets of society, the police, to have that extra tracking information and medical information. So then they might not want to give it up. And, yeah, it's right. posing some yeah. really hard questions. <laughs> well, since we've gone into the whole COVID arena, and I'm sure you're being asked this question a lot in all your promotional work for the book, you did start this book five years ago. But, of course, we are living through an, a pandemic. We have been for the last couple of years. How far through the writing of the book were you when, when COVID-19 actually hit? Oh, I was quite close to the end. So that was a very strange moment. You know, and at at one stage I was just thinking, well, this book is cooked because (laughs) who is going to want to read this book when I'm writing about something that we're now all living through? And in actual fact, you know, mine is is worse because it affects babies and children. And so in kind of a, a major way. So you could almost say that that's kind of pushing that further than we would ever want to really think about. But I think also I realized that I was really writing about women's friendships and empowerment and relationships and fight back and lots of, you know, this book to me isn't a kind of the setting is horrible and depressing and unnerving and that kind of thing, but it's starting from that point and saying, where do they take it? Where do these characters go from here and what do they do next? You know, And I felt like because of the framing that I built around that and because of the fact that that to me, is a very empowering side of the story, not a depressing mm. side of the story. I very quickly felt like I could keep going on with it because I it almost regalvanized me as well because I feel like there is so much weariness now in the world that we live in that we could easily have our rights eroded for us because we are tired, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we are over it and we don't want to think about big questions and big things because we spent two years, you know, trying to keep ourselves going and afloat in all sorts of different ways. And that is the time of worry as well, you know, in many dystopian fiction, many dystopian visions rather, Mm. that, you know, 
that's the point where people can come in when your guard is down and do a lot of things without you really noticing. And there are definitely things going on in all sorts of governments where things are being pushed through very kind of quietly and easily, if Mm. possible, rather than being presented to us. And to me, that's a sign of a government where things are maybe going slightly wrong because the government should be up front, you know, in a democracy and we should be learning about what they want to do on every front. And no matter how much you like your government, uh, that seems to be creeping in all over the place. So, yeah, it does. that's yeah. concerning. Yeah. Yeah. Did you did you make any sort of major changes to the plot or any of the, the events in the book as a result of the pandemic COVID actually happening? Yeah, I did. I Not major changes to the plot that I already had, but I the pandemic in as a historical point of reference. Yeah. So that was really the main thing that I did. Most other things were there, but the again, the beginning, Emma, the midwife mum, she takes a test at home, you know, which is like a, a test to check she's not got infection. It doesn't specifically talk about COVID in the finished book. They did it in one draft, but then we changed it to just be more general pandemic wise. But yeah, she takes the test to find out whether she's well enough to go to work that day and the results are in go to the hospital and they're instantly conveyed back to her and she's given the all clear to go to work. And there are a few kind of, testing sites popping up at school and bits and pieces where it's very casually mentioned because people have got used to living with it in my book and have kind of moved on from that but everything has obviously changed because of that as well so you do see a lot more kind of little medical testing going on and intervention every now and again and checks how was the writing of this I imagine it was quite different because you have been doing it as part of a PhD Could you talk a little bit about how the actual writing process might have been different for you with this one to to your previous books? Yeah, well, to be honest, because my PhD supervisors are lovely and very trusting, it ended up being quite similar to my other books, which is that what I tend to do is I have an idea that percolates in my mind for quite a long time before I even start writing anything down. And then I really do see my chapters like building blocks and I if I have a scene in mind that doesn't fit in chronologically to the chapter order, I will still write it down and keep it to one side to come back to it. But really, I do work in order as I'm building the story. So I'll build that first scene, chapter, those first elements of the book, and I'll work and work and work and refine on them. And all the time, I will be working ahead, making notes or yeah, having little snippets of other sections but I won't be placing anything until I feel like I've got that first chapter really well done. And then I'll go on and I'll build the second part, um, second chapter, start to build it up. But if I feel like anything's getting wobbly, I'll go back and tighten the first chapter or the first section, wherever I've got to. Um, And I build it like that so that by the, by the end of the book, I don't do much editing. I'm not one of, you know, my good friend, Natasha, I know you've interviewed Mm. Natasha Lester. Um, She does it quite differently to me where she comes out with a draft very quickly and then she goes over and reworks and tightens the whole thing together. And I've tried other methods because sometimes I find my method quite laborious. (laughs) I think um, we're all like that. No matter how we do it, it's always like the grass is greener, you know? Absolutely. And you're like, well, James Patterson can get his rings down so quickly. And he talks about these outlines like, right, I'm outlining next time. (laughs) And then I start this outline and it kills it for me because I can't get inside the story in the way that I want to in order to write it down. So I always end up going back to this process because I find that I'm getting... I'm locking myself into the depth of the book as I go along then. And I'm kind of, yeah, balancing it all out as I go. And it just works for me building it in that way. So I've come to realise I can't change much about it. And although I did show sections to my supervisors as I went along, they were just very patient in letting me do it the way I could do it, which was brilliant because it would have been very hard to change the style to Mm. to suit somebody else and how have you found this sort of theoretical side of the PhD Sarah have you enjoyed that I've loved it yeah I would I would happily go back to it for another five years my only complaint is that I can't do enough of it you know there's not enough time to look at everything I want to look at and to read everything I want to read I just love absorbing it I don't always have the best memory (laughs) so I have to be careful you know that I take good notes and like reabsorb when I need to because otherwise yeah I I seem to suck in sensations and feelings and more than facts with books 
so when it comes to actually representing the facts of a book I'll you know be like I know I love that book and I know it made me feel like this and I'll maybe remember one or two things but I'll lose the facts if I'm not careful so I think I need to write those down as a process of committing them to memory but really whenever I get in that library at Curtin which is where I'm studying I just feel like oh (laughs) I'm in my church all these brains and the little books that I can just explore and yeah I could literally do it forever I'm fascinated by everyone's take on things having said that there are some very very amazingly clever people out there who you know it's been a challenge to look at the theory and to go that in depth and to actually engage with it understand it try and work on my own theories yeah it's been an enormous challenge but I love it at the same time so one of the things you mentioned earlier was about the the absence of the mother in a lot of dystopian, you know, fi- or near future fiction. And there's obviously a very strong mother-daughter relationship in The Hush. A couple of things on that. How is your sort of study of this, I guess, as part of your PhD, what conclusions have you been able to draw on that, that relationship in this genre of fiction? Yeah, great question because I love talking about this. Thank you. (laughs) Some really interesting ones. So to summarise, the first thing that I discovered was that a lot of the fiction that has absent mothers in, if it's written by women, also often features the characters longing for some kind of idealistic mother figure, which is fascinating to explore when the mothers are actually not present and often the young girls in the fiction are quite upset by their mothers as well. Not always, but sometimes the mothers are abusive and sometimes they're just not present. I mean, again, Katniss's mother in The Hunger Games is a great example because through her grief from losing Katniss's dad, she's not, and the general circumstances they live in, she's not mentally present for the kids and Katniss is back quite angry about that at the beginning. So it was fascinating to see how all of them wove elements in of this longing for this kind of mother figure. And you could deconstruct that even, even further as to, you know, whether they're longing for this idealised mother figure, which I think quite a lot of them are. They've got this very fixed image of what a mother should be. And a mother, in reality, can never live up to that, which is a kind of under, what would we say, kind of, it's kind of an underbelly commentary, really, of where mothers fit in in society. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Because, you know, there is the same thing, you know, this idealisation of, motherhood that no one can ever live up to so that was really fascinating to see that reflected in the narrative and also fascinating to see that it didn't occur as much in books written by men if at all um, in the ones that I've studied so that's a very generalized thing to say uh, with a specific study but I'd love to explore that further if I ever got the chance another thing was just the lack of language that we have around speaking about motherhood and mothers and daughters and the fact that We don't think often about that we've been brought up in a patriarchal culture, which does prioritise patriarchal language. And we maybe don't even have the words for some of our experiences. And we certainly struggle to convey our experiences to one another at times. So various theorists have talked about the kind of coding that a mother uses to try and teach her daughter things, but also keep her safe. And the coding that a daughter will use to try and you know, tell her mother things, but also protect herself from her mother's judgment. And, you know, there's lots of different levels of coding going on in that kind of language, aside from the lack of language that we have, that can be really fascinating to explore. What else did I discover? The language language becomes more about the language of the body in a lot of kind of maternal theorist academic studies. So to actually try and reinsert the mother into language, Often people start writing about very bodily experiences, very physical experiences of womanhood, because we have all these physical experiences Mm -hmm. throughout our lives, you know, kind of. So people have tried to reinsert themselves into language by writing about the body. And I certainly tried to put a little bit of that in the hush as well, so that when Emma can't talk to Lainey properly, she uses her body instead of using words sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other final thing, (laughs) without going on too much, was... um, That's great. was um, just this kind of culturally constructed lie of separation that mothers and daughters are taught about so that the mother is expected to step back as a daughter matures and kind of recede into the background and the fact that in many circumstances this is presented as a normal state of affairs like a growing up into independence means that mothers go and sort of head towards irrelevancy whereas in fact that's a very culturally constructed vision of what needs to happen with mothers and daughters which 
again, serves patriarchal culture a lot more than it serves the women involved in that exchange. Women are often fooled into those kinds of feelings, you know, that they should be like this, which again impacts on the language that they use to talk to each other because they come to the relationship with expectations of what they're not able to bring to one another or, yeah, how they are unable to protect or care for each other at certain stages in life. So that can really alter the mothers and daughters talk to each other. So, yeah, and there's loads of other stuff as well, but I will stop. Oh, that's fascinating. (laughs) It's fascinating. Are you still working on that part of the Yeah, I've just got one chapter to go. I've done, I'm refining chapters, but one is half finished and the rest are done. So I'm getting close now, which is great. That's exciting. How do you think your own experience of motherhood and and daughterhood too, I guess, has informed, well, I guess all of your books, but this book in particular? Yes, uh, absolutely, very much so. I think that having two daughters myself has just galvanised me into this research because I'm fascinated by the academic topics but also how it impacts me personally and I've found a lot of reflection (laughs) has been going on in the last five years as to you know where my assumptions lie about what our relationship might be like or what I'm meant to be like as a mother rather than what I actually want to be like as a mother or how I feel drawn to be as a mother and what my girls want from me or don't want from me and you know kind of all those kinds of things and I think that something I've talked about quite a bit that threw that into real light for me was when the Me Too movement was going on. And I decided after listening to other people's experiences and feeling quite disturbed by a few things, I thought, oh, I'm going to talk to a counsellor about this because I actually felt quite powerless in terms of how I could engage with my girls when this is just a repetitive cycle that has been going on for so long you know we don't seem to be able to really break it down in society that women are not feeling safe or respected or you know kind of open to this level of abuse and denigration so I went and talked to a psychologist about that and I was I said to her you know I want to know how I can protect her because I was thinking particularly of my older daughter then because my other one was still tiny Um, how old are your daughters now so now they're 12 and 8 so but yeah both of them you know kind of but particularly I was saying I want to know how to protect um, them from this kind of thing and she said to me you can't protect them you have to prepare them and I was really confronted by that although I knew exactly what she was saying because I could see where she what she meant in terms of you can't change the world you can't change society you have to be realistic that she said they are going to come across some sort of harassment in their lives you know yeah you have to get them ready for it almost you know and I was like at the one time I I felt almost like a burden had been lifted off me as in I wasn't a superwoman who could you know save yeah them from everything I also felt very much galvanized into that's just not on you know I don't want to prepare them for society like this and so I think that comes through in the book as well in terms of where can we find the gaps you know where can we see what's going on what might be cultural constructions that we hadn't realized and we've very much naturalized these elements of female relationships where might we find the power in female relationships where might we really explore the strength in present women who are there for each other because often the women end up portraying each other in these kind of stories as well because it's just an interesting plot device and it is a fascinating plot device to watch characters betray each other but when it happens over and over again have we then caused kind of readership to take that as a natural occurrence or an expected occurrence is there something else we can represent in different kinds of fiction as well you know so yeah Yeah. that really did spur me on and of course there is that very strong you know female presence in the book there is the women's march and things like that could you talk a little bit maybe about in particular your characters your female characters in the hush and who each of them are and just how you distilled some of these ideas into those characters absolutely so yeah emma is the midwife mum she is very much worn down by the kind of society she lives in she does her best and she tries to kind of intervene in the hospital where mothers aren't getting the treatment or the compassion in particular that they need particularly at the present time Uh, but she is feeling very ground down by the society and the new rules and one thing and another. So she really, yeah, she is a single mom as well. And her husband walked out when she, when Lainey was quite young. 
So she hasn't had the opportunity to have the exact relationship with Lainey that she wanted to have. She's caught up in having to earn a living and work shifts and one thing or another. So I think as far as that goes, she's a quiet rebel. And I think that Lainey also, her daughter, has elements of that as well because she's not the kind of girl that is going to put herself at the forefront of any kind of rebellion. But she has this really quiet strength that means that she wants to say no when no is needed. And so she's definitely going to go to the Women's March with her friends and, yeah, just be part of everything that she feels like she wants to stand up for. But she's a little, she's quite a quiet soul. She's an artist and she works at a vet and she loves taking care of sick animals and things like that. And I think naturally she just wants to get on with her life. Mm. But they have these amazing friends. Lainey's best friend is called Serena. Now Serena would want to change the world whatever circumstances she found herself in she's very fiery kind of real young go get out there and yeah do all you can and just you know shout as loud as you can about what you think is wrong and so Serena's obviously leading this band of friends who very much think that the new laws are too much and want to know where their missing friend is and Serena's mum, Mina, is a human rights lawyer. And so she's encouraged both girls to kind of think about topics and talk about things that they and d- discuss as well. And she discusses things with them with an open mind and she lets them have a say and she doesn't dictate the situations to them. And so the girls have been brought up with this openness around their mothers, definitely both of them, where they feel like they can talk to them when they need to. But li- there's a bit more of a edge between Lainey and Emma at the start because life circumstances have forced them into their own corners at the time and then the fifth component of this is Geraldine who comes in a bit later who is Emma's estranged mother and she's kind of left the family behind to become an academic feminist speaker and written lots of books and she is again very loud very got a great sense of humor and often brings a little bit of lightness to horrible situations because she's got quite a good sarcastic <laughs> to her as well. But yeah, she when she came in, she's a, a complete firecracker as well. And she just stormed in when I finally let her onto the page and gave me like 20 pages of <laughs> diatribe. And I was like, oh, this can't all go in. This is going to have to be really condensed. <laughs> but she had a whole philosophy that she wanted to get out there by the time yeah, we actually got to Geraldine, which was awesome. So between them, I hope they represent lots of different facets of strong women without being the same. No, they really do. And it was interesting hearing you talk about Geraldine there. So for you, when you're writing, you sort of said you have your initial ideas Mm. and you write and then you go backwards and forwards. But did that character just come to you as you were writing or had you (laughs) thought about putting her in there earlier? Where did she come from? Well, Geraldine was in there for quite a long time as a sort of a narrator we were going to see through her point of view and then I realized that I couldn't make the Lainey Emma relationship work in the same way where Geraldine just kept oh, getting yeah. in the way so I was quite sad to pull her out because I had quite a lot of scenes where she was you know we saw her back we saw her living in Australia before she goes over to England to do a speaking tour and saw quite a bit more of her humor in her life but as a result of that yeah I did pull back on that part of things because I felt like it diluted the Emma Laney story in the end. But Geraldine obviously got very frustrated about this because she does have a lot to say. She still has a lot to say. (laughs) (laughs) And they do end up feeling very, very real after you spend so long with them as well. So once you start thinking about Geraldine, you'll hear her, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So there's been so much like research for you and thinking and pulling all this this together for this story, Sarah, do you think there's another novel around the same ideas lurking there for you? Yeah, it's a question I'm getting asked a lot and I would like to go back. The story ends at a point where you can see there's an ending has come together, but it's not the end of the world and it's not the end of those characters and so... Yeah, I would definitely like to go back in. I do think there is more that I could do, but I think it's also good for me to have a break and to let those ideas settle and shift and do what they need to do and not race to do that. So I've got another story in mind that I'd like to do first and then we'll see. Do you think researching and writing this has changed your ideas on the sort of books you want to write? I think it's probably expanded them rather than changed. And so because I've always liked putting elements of kind of 
just cultural commentary and questions in my book. And I've always enjoyed the psychological element about what makes people tick and how close relationships can be really impacted by wider world, wider decisions or one thing or another. So I think it's probably just pushed me to kind of go past maybe what I felt were my limits before and to work in whatever area I feel most passionate about at the time and to try and make that work. I think that there will still be a core thread of the psychological suspense running through those stories maybe not all of them you know I wouldn't mind doing some non-fiction as well about the kinds of things I've learned through the research process but I do love that I love doing a narrative where we have the pace and the tension and you know I do like those fast-paced narratives I really enjoy reading them as well Mm -hmm. and if you can add extra layers into those narratives that's really rewarding to be able to do it's a fine balance though between doing and doing it well and it's very very hard to strike that balance and that's when you need a great team of editors around you and publishers who can help you do that well because you can start to lose two threads if you try and be too ambitious but yeah, yeah. I'm definitely up for trying a lot more things. Excellent. Was there any um, pushback or concern from your publisher about going in, into this near future type direction? Yeah, I think there has been a fair bit of concern just because it's new and it's different and people don't want to lose the readership that you've already got and particularly Mm. with the topics being quite raw and, yeah, very difficult. You know, it was originally going to be published with Simon Schuster and then we decided that we had different visions for the book. Okay. So, yeah, we kind of ended up, you know, going in different directions and that's why HarperCollins have ended up publishing it. But my publisher at HarperCollins, Anna, very much shared the vision about the women. So, yeah, and I think that the book needed that it needed the champion of these female characters and if you really feel though them I think the rest of the story you begin to understand how it works and how it all ties in together the context is really important for the book and Mm. the women even though it's hard so yeah I was I was very glad that Anna could draw out some of those themes excellent yeah a couple of writerly questions just before we finish off you know you talked about that pacing and tension and all that Have you got any tips for people who might be listening who are writers of any genre really on, you know, upping the tension in your writing and getting that cracking pace? Yeah, I think it's just looking for, I think you need to reduce the words as much as you can to only leave the ones there that need to be on the page. And that can be quite hard. But I think if you read your chapter again and again and look for where the loose words are and the loose paragraphs are and the things that don't need to be there, I think that's a great way of trying to increase the tension. I think also I have definitely over the course of my career upped the plot ante, I think, you know, kind of, I I think I was a bit like my, my first books were slower paced because I wanted to draw out the themes and things like that. But the more you can put plot elements into the story, that's a great, when things are happening, that's going to up the tension. Mm. So if you don't dwell, and again, I guess it comes down to loose words again, a bit, you've got to be very careful how you dwell on things. So you want to pick your moments to dwell, but you don't want to dwell on everything. And what is not there is as important as what is there. So you really want to be very choosy about what ends up on the page. And I always think that you can pull back and pull back and pull back and it will probably make it better because people don't want to read really wordy books anymore. I don't think either. They want movement in the story so yeah look for the movement and look for the loose loose words loose paragraphs even loose chapters <laughs> yeah yeah and like you say reducing things right down so that the reader has that opportunity to fill in gaps themselves that yes. pulls the reader in doesn't it yes yeah you linger you linger on anything for too long and you'll spoil attention I think but it's a dance and it's quite hard to describe when you are out of it because when you're in it you're sort of playing the dance and then you're trying to look at it at a different level when you're talking about technique but it's definitely a really finely balanced thing to get those those words exactly right on the page and it takes like not only do you take a year or two to write the book, but it takes a good year of editing sometimes before you really mm. feel like that's right. And some sometimes, as I'm sure you know, like you'll have a paragraph that works straight away and then you'll have one that never feels quite right, you know, and you just have to leave it in the end almost because yeah. you're not sure where to go with it next. But, I, yeah, that is what I'm looking for most of the time. How do I condense it down? How do I 
choose the right words as well every word is so important and that's the most aggravating thing about writing because you can't rush it and you have to think about it so much and also the most joyous because you have to be so specific that it teaches you to pay such close attention and careful attention to what you're doing that it opens up the world to you in a way because you are yeah having to observe and think and listen and reflect and so yeah I really do find it both levels yeah, exasperating and awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> like lots of aspects of the yes. writing one <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you know when you when COVID hit and you were writing this book and it is mentioned as as something that's happened previously in the hush there has been a lot of talk around writers circles about you know I'm writing a contemporary work of fiction should I mention COVID? Should I include the pandemic? Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I just think you've got to go with what works with your novel because, I mean, I've just written another one and I've got an idea for another one and one hasn't mentioned COVID at all and it's contemporary, but it was very, it's focused very much on two couples in a very close situation. I didn't feel like COVID needed to come into it. The other one will be a bigger story with a bigger background and it will mention COVID because it would seem strange not to. So I think it will be hard if every book mentions COVID, but I think that's because we're so weary of COVID as well. Maybe, you know, kind of you wouldn't expect to read a book about 1940 now without reading about the war in some way. Yeah. But it's probably because we're not really ready to read about it because we don't want to read about it while we're living it. And so that's a challenge for authors because, yeah, how are we going to do that? But, yeah, at the same time, I think that it will become more the norm, but perhaps we don't need to dwell on it. You know, yeah. we can just acknowledge it and then write our story. Um, it's unless the fabric it's, yeah, unless it's playing a role. Yeah. Were there any particularly uh, standout books for you in the genre, like particularly contemporary ones maybe that people haven't heard of in dystopian or near future fiction that you could recommend other than The Hush, of course? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my big standout is a book, a book called The Book of the Unnamed Midwife, um, which is by Meg Ellison. And I just loved everything about that book. She manages to zoom in and out of her central character amazingly well and kind of presents all kinds of different points of view it's basically the story of a woman um trying to make her way in the world after most people have been killed most women and children in fact more than men have been killed by a virus and there's a lot more men left than there are women on the planet and the women aren't treated very well at times but this woman she dresses as a man and she's very practical about the kind of help she can offer the women um, and she just tries to make her way through the world to safety while giving people help where she can but by being very realistic <laughs> about mm. what she is able to do but it's just beautifully written and so many interesting themes to explore so that would be my pick mm, that sounds great I'll put that um info in the show notes for everyone who's listening yes. to seeing <laughs> the book down it does raise another quick question though Sarah a lot of people will say if they're writing a book they either don't read while they're writing it or they don't read in their own genre that they write. Did you find at any time, because obviously you were doing that when you were, you know, doing all the research for the book, was it difficult to navigate that path between not being overly influenced by what you were reading and researching? Surprisingly, no, actually, because I think from the outside looking in, I would have thought very much so. And in fact, I do gravitate when I'm doing intense periods of writing to nonfiction because I don't know whether it's just my head is too full or I can't linger in the fiction in the same way, but I find the very factual, you know, kind of basis of nonfiction is important for me when I'm having to live in the book so much. But no, it didn't with the research. And I don't know whether it's because I had the luxury of the time to actually go deep into these books, which was fascinating, and to think carefully about how they were doing things and to actually translate that into the story. And I already had the genesis of the story there. So it wasn't like I had to then come up with a story. Yeah. Um, I already kind of knew what I was doing and I was just interested in how everyone else did it so I could explore. But I don't think I've ever had that luxury before of spending so long exploring. Yeah. So it felt very much like a play thing rather than, whereas I think if you are writing to a deadline and it, there's that pressure on you 
there's not that time to play. And that's a shame, isn't it? Because so much of creativity is enhanced by this exploration and yeah. this play that we can um, do when we get enough time. But when you're a working writer, the deadlines are not all amenable to that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, just one last question for, for you, Sarah. What would you say is at the heart of your writing? I would say at the heart of my writing is just a desire to understand how people tick and how relationships work and why things happen the way they do. Mm. I'm just questions, questions, questions at the heart of my writing and just loving to bring what is less seen or less noticed into different kinds of light as well. So obviously it's around the women in this book and the themes around motherhood and the way we think about mothers. In other stories, it's been other aspects of maybe being a teenager or being an environmental activist or things like that. I just look, love looking deeply into the unknown and asking questions about what it's like to be like that and just drawing out those themes so that we all get to explore those questions. Because I think the questions are way more important than the answers. Exploring them. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been so lovely to chat to you. And like I said, I would absolutely be loving to read your exegesis and to read some, <laughs> hopefully some nonfiction around this as well when you get to it. That would be great. Well, good luck with that and getting the PhD finished and with the new book that you're working on. Thanks so much for having me, Pamela. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. The end.